Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And we have two guests with us today. Please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Jason Greenlow. I'm the Executive Director at the Center for AI Policy. And I'm Jacob Kraus. I'm the Operations Director. We've spoken a lot about AI and our fear of it and how maybe somebody should do something about that. And it sounds like <laughs> you guys are part of the people working about doing something about it. Stephen, you had a question first. Did you want to hit that? Maybe you've got like an elevator pitch when somebody asks you, hey, what do you do for your living? And you explain what the organization does. And they say, AI, why is that a big problem? Because for some reason, I know a handful of, of people who aren't the least bit worried about this. And I don't quite understand what is going on in their minds. So I guess, why is this a concern to you? Why do you think that it should be concerned to others? What I tell some of the skeptics is the AI that I can cobble together in my bedroom in a few weeks is roughly as good as I am at solving some professional type problems. Right? I asked it to predict what's the fine going to be on, on this nursing home case. I'm a lawyer. I asked it to predict how's the UN going to vote on this issue. I asked it to predict what's this home going to sell for. And it gets the right answers at least as often as I do. It beats me at chess. It can navigate better than I can. And it improves its capabilities every year. So if I just think about how clever is AI at solving various kinds of problems today? How clever was it 10 years ago? How clever is it likely to be in 10 years if we just draw a straight line through all of that? It's going to be clever enough that our society doesn't have the tools to cope with those powers, right? I mean, an AI that can drive and lawyer and doctor about as well as a reasonably smart professional can, that's already kind of spooky. But what happens when it's the best lawyer on the planet, the best stock investor on the planet, the best navigator on the planet? What if it isn't exactly aligned with our values? What if it's even slightly picking something else that isn't quite what we'd want? Who's going to wind up with what they want? Us, the humans, or the thing that's kind of a lot cleverer than we are for all practical purposes? So that's, that's part of what concerns me. And I think there's a lot of good reasons to think that a straight line is conservative. AI might be on an exponential growth curve. It might get smarter, faster over the next 10 years than it did over the 10 years before. That is a really good pitch for the normies. <laughs> what way to ruin it by saying for the normies? <laughs> well, I mean, this is like something that I can tell my parents. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that, that, was, that was really well put. I mean, and, and it touched a lot of the concern areas. Income or you know, how, how people earn a living when, like I'm a software engineer. When we talked about GPT two when it came out, you know, I was like, "Oh, that's cool." And then GPT four comes out, and it's it's about as good as I am at my job. Better because it has more patience, actually. Um, <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't have thought my job would be among the first to go. And I'm I'm kind of prepping for the the midterm future where it is. And I mean, that's just one. You know, you're right as far as alignment concerns, whether or not it's agentic or not. There's like even just the boring case of like, all right, we've got this super smart AI. Hey, count all the atoms in North America because we're bored. And just, you know, use, use all the compute you need. And it's like, you got it, boss. And it goes ahead and makes more compute or kills us so it can take all the rest of the compute to, to finish counting atoms. You know, it doesn't have to be like malicious, right? I think, I think people sometimes imagine that like the AI has to be this resentful demon in a box to be dangerous. And that's not really even the case. Sure. That's definitely something we're concerned about too. You know, yeah. is not that the AI is out to get us. But think about how well crickets do after humans move into a neighborhood, right? I don't hate crickets. They're cute. I kind of even like the way they sound. But I'm going to put up an apartment building with a pool and a, a tennis court. And crickets don't live on the tennis court. They don't live in the pool. They don't live in my apartment. They're mostly dead here where I built my house. And it's not because I have anything against crickets. It's just 
are our neighborhoods made of stuff and that stuff could be used to build things humans like or it could be used to build things that artificial intelligence is like and i know which one i'd pick yeah, yeah my house is a year old and i didn't trouble myself to even move the crickets first you know um <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've done a number of episodes on that so me and steven are definitely strongly already on your side here and i think most of our audience is at least completely aware of it but i'm glad there's people like you around to explain this to people like my parents and it seems like you guys have been doing a pretty good job in recent polls i think i saw something like 70 percent of americans are strongly in support of using some caution about developing ai further the thing is that there's there's many steps between like hey, we all agree we should use some caution here and actually having something done. And you guys are one of the first steps in this chain, if I am understanding correctly. Who are you and what what is your mission here? What are you doing? So we don't want to take too much credit for being the only people getting things done. We're standing on the shoulders of giants here. There's all these organizations in the space that have thought hard about what would alignment look like? How much time do we need to get to alignment? How do we have policies that would usefully give us additional time? The problem is a lot of those people live in the Bay Area. A lot of them are computer scientists or philosophers. So they're not necessarily talking to Congress very often. And if they are, they're probably working for a 501c3, where there's some constraints on how vigorously they can advocate for their preferred policies. So hmm. They might you know, sort of educate some key Congress members from time to time about some of the risk and some of the options. What we can do, because we're a 501c4 at the Center for AI Policy, is we can call an office and ask to take a meeting and say, hey, here's what we think you should do and why. By an office, do you mean like the office of a senator or a representative or something like that? Exactly. Do you do that? We do, yeah. Uh, Jacob, do you know how many we've met with so far? Around 50, maybe more than that at this point. That's a lot more wow. than I would have uh, optimistically guessed. What's the reception been like? There's a wide range of different perspectives on this. And generally, people working in Congress are not coming from a technical background. So there's some degree of trying to figure out what this technology is and how it works. And especially if you haven't heard about it since last November or when ChatGPT came out. And then in terms of responses to regulation again some people are explicitly very interested in in looking at okay what what kind of anticipated threats are coming up and especially from really large general purpose systems and some of the policies we're pushing for like licensing for giving giving government consent to deploy an ai model or to build an ai model or certain kinds of ai models like the really large general purpose ones some of the pushback that we get is stuff like well kind of typical pushback you might see. So government spending, building bureaucracy, regulating business, stifling innovation, and uh, doing a, a big action before Congress has understood the technology. So those are that's some of the pushback and reaction. Okay, I'm, I'm legit surprised by this. The actual Congress people are saying to you that we're worried about there being too much regulation and us taking too much action uh, before we're ready? <laughs> That's right. Some, well, not the Congress people. The, some, some staffers we talk to are usually okay. we're not talking with the actual member of Congress. We're talking with someone who may be in their 20s or, or 30s and, and is working very hard to figure out what legislative agenda to be pushing or what, what kind of policies to be promoting. 
I, I'm just I'm, I'm really surprised. I always assumed the opposite that they would always be thinking, "All right, cool, more things to regulate." I, I guess I have a very jaded view of government. Oh, that's interesting. If you find the right middle manager in a federal agency, they might be excited to build their empire a little bit to say, "Okay, good, more more things for me to be directly responsible for, more staff, more budget." But often not. They're often overwhelmed. You know, people are trying to do too much with too few resources. And that goes triple for the Congress people because each congressperson is sort of notionally overseeing a budget of, you know, tens of billions of dollars. And that's too much for one person and their staff of seven people. So they're not necessarily asking for more work. Yeah, I think the amount of bureaucratic bloat and stuff is less of a feature and more of just a bug, Inyash. I think I don't think they strive for it. I think it just kind of happens. It's, I guess there's so much of it, it seems like they're doing it on purpose. But <laughs> <laughs> And part of it is it's easier to commission another panel to say, hey, let's get this committee together to give us a report than it is to take action. And every time you set up a new agency to give you an opinion about something, you know, maybe it's kind of a zombie. It just keeps shambling forward through history, even after its time has passed. Are you one of the groups that submits things to these panels and committees that are being formed? We do. It's not our primary effort. We're trying to weigh in where we can make a big difference and kind of raise some perspectives that we think are being neglected. We want to make sure the executive branch is at least in touch with some of the AI safety concerns, but we're primarily trying to influence Congress. I'm assuming you call up the office of uh, a senator, you speak to some staffer. How do you introduce yourself and convince them to take a meeting with you? Or is that too privileged information? No, we'd love competitors. Please steal our secrets. The the short answer is that it's very easy, right? I mean, these people are happy to meet with us, especially the first time. AI is such a hot topic on the Hill right now. We are nonpartisan, we're nonprofit, and that definitely attracts some interest it's not like we're yet another company trying to explain why you should give us a giant subsidy so we're kind of coming at the topic people want to talk about uh from a perspective that people want to hear we're meeting with mostly relatively junior staffers we've had some legislative directors some deputy chief counsels some deputy chiefs of staff here and there but mostly we've been meeting with the legislative assistants and that's their job is to go hear from all the different people who have an opinion about the topics where their senator or their representative is on a relevant committee or is taking a stand on it and just kind of see what the public thinks so it's very normal to to come to capitol hill and meet with a legislative assistant and share your group's opinion with them huh I'm not exactly sure what I expected, but I always assumed you had to be some flavor of, I don't want to say nobility, but you had access to people in power already beforehand, and you couldn't just call someone up and say, like, I am from this organization. I I feel slightly more (laughs) involved in my government just knowing that this is possible, (laughs) which is weird. Yeah, we do have a few connections just through our network, and we also hired some professional lobbyists to get us a few more introductions. but. Even when we cold call somebody ourselves and don't know them, they'll usually take the call. And if you have something reasonably relevant to talk to them about, they'll probably take your call, too. That's uh, bizarrely encouraging. Maybe it was just too early to admit defeat, having never even considered trying of like, maybe if I wrote an email to my, my local representative's office, I'd get a reply. I just assumed I wouldn't. You know, and maybe just, you know, one schmo might not, but... You probably don't from an email. So I worked as the receptionist for Bill Nelson uh, back before, you know, machine learning was more than just a glint in Benjio's eye. And who's Bill Nelson? He's currently, I think, the administrator for NASA, but he started out as one of Florida's senators. Well, he started as an astronaut, and then he used that 
based on Florida's Cape Canaveral to go become a senator for Florida. And so I was his intern, and I was the guy answering all of the schmoes who were trying to contact him. And we had boxes full of letters that people had handwritten and mailed in. They would literally take the box into the room and would go thunk on the desk. We had the phones ringing off the hook. I had to answer them and kind of triage the calls and figure out which calls get promoted up to the next higher level of legislative correspondent, which calls get immediately rushed to some deputy chief of staff for immediate action. And then most of them, we'd take a note. I'd ask for the zip code, right? We'd say, what's your zip code? All right, what bill are you supporting or opposing? Do you support it or oppose it? Okay, and we'd pass on a survey. Hey, boss, you know, 15 people called in today to support the, you know, free lunches for clowns bill, and two (laughs) people opposed it. Okay, and they'd look at that when they decide how to vote. I mean, I I wouldn't expect an individual citizen to have that much impact, but just the idea that as a citizen, I can go and form a nonprofit if I have access to just, you know, a middling line of money. Now, as a nonprofit and a website and maybe someone that I hire, I have enough legitimacy to start meeting with people. If that first meeting goes well and they can take me seriously, parlay that into actually having some effect on the government. I mean, that's something an individual person could theoretically do. You'd have to devote a lot of your life to it, probably not compatible with holding down a 40-hour-a-week job on as well, but it's not like you have to be born of noble lineage or something. Yeah, the gentry can manage it. Do you have a backup cause? If you weren't working on AI safety or anything like that, what would you lobby the government about? Probably my first thing... <laughs> this is going to be unpopular. Uh, probably my first thing would be eliminate mandatory education. Fascinating. My, yeah. my first thing would be expediting drug trials and time to market for new medicine. Yeah, that can Ooh, save a lot a of really lives. That's a good one, too. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, our- Enosh, we don't have to start from scratch, you know, and grassroots our own organization. We've, we've got the Center for AI Policy. You guys did all the hard work of getting legitimized, getting in touch with people, and getting things going. Yeah. Just a two, couple minutes on this, but how did you guys get started? Jacob actually joined the organization before I did. You want to tell our origin story? Yeah. So, it was originally through Thomas Larson, who was... Current, who is currently the strategy director, but was pretty pivotal in founding the org. And so he he used to work at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, so MIRI, and he was working on technical research, so kind of technical AI alignment. And he switched into policy work partly because of thinking, well, the so the technical alignment part seems hard. Uh, people have a lot of different views on how hard it will be to align these future systems. And, and from Thomas's perspective, it's, it's going to be really, really difficult. And so when he saw this attention that the issue is getting in government, and, and he also has some background doing grant making, so he, he's kind of familiar with building sort of quantitative models and estimating the impact of different interventions. And, and so it kind of lends into, into building policies. And he, he was testing out his fit at it. And, and he came up with some of the early working versions of this bill that we've since continued to refine. So he had this bill. He applied for funding. through That was through the Lightspeed Grants Program, which is kind of downstream of the Survival and Flourishing Fund and Jan Tallinn of Skype. Once the funding came in, there's also some individual donors who supported us. We were able to start expanding the team and, and hiring lobbyists. And so, so there was some process of going to D.C. And, and meeting with different lobbyists as well and meeting with some offices and getting sort of the early 
organization started. So, so that's some of how it was in the early days. And how did, how did you come to find yourself at the Center for AI Policy? <laughs> so partly I knew Thomas from college, so we were friends there. And then also I was working at the, I was, I was sort of doing contract volunteering for the Center for AI Safety. They had one researcher there who was also going to DC. So I was part of that trip to DC and was taking notes in the meetings there with some congressional staffers as well. Everyone was really interested in AI and and so I, I helped a little bit with looking at what was going on and what the staffers' reactions were in the meetings. You mentioned that there's a build that you're working on. Do you guys have a model build that you're proposing? Yeah, it's continued to try to add in more and more details. And Jason's been working on that, so he can talk about that. But at a high level, some of the key components are a, a sort of government consent, permit, license to, to build a really large-scale, powerful AI system. So at the level of think GPT-4, similarly to deploy it, similarly to have the weights for it even, and, and also at the infrastructure level. So if you have assemble a really large collection of hardware for, that's kind of necessary for building the system, then you, that's also part of this licensing scheme that we envision in the build. And then there's a few other parts like like looking at the distribution of hardware and, and setting up an oversight body to actually administer the licenses. And Jason, do you want to talk about liability? Sure. Yeah, the bill's got some liability reforms. Part of the insight there is private companies know things about how to keep their products safe that the government's never going to find out in practice. So it's just better to get the information closer to the source if you can. We don't know for sure that a company would be held liable if it licenses its products to third parties, they come up with plugins or they fine tune away some of the protections, then yet another person uses that fine tune model to cause harm. Can you actually go after the original developer for that and sue them and make them pay damages for all the harm that's caused? It's kind of unclear right now under existing law. So we'd like to remove that lack of clarity. We'd like to make it very obvious to these companies if the products you're making available lead to harm in any way, you can expect to pay for the damages. Uh, so I don't know how many lawyers and law students you have on your show. I could get into some of the technical legal details, but the basic idea is just make sure there's no doubt. Make sure that if you cause harm, you're on the hook for it. I think that's a great starting point. I, I know that as soon as GPT-4 had the capacity to receive plugins, there are people using it to literally like, hey, try and do as much damage as possible, like just to see what it would do. <laughs> Yeah. Chaos GPT. Yeah. And I it seems like the second you put one of these in the wild, you only need a dozen maybe maybe they're just edgelord teenagers or they're, you know, deliberate psychopaths or something to to try and gear this towards doing damage. You know, if someone were to whatever coax homemade recipe for a for a dirty bomb to the a stuff that they can make out of their house from ChatGPT, being able to sue the company and say, look, you guys are actually paying, paying the bill for this and paying for all the damages and uh, victims, uh, what do you call that? Pain and suffering. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and why shouldn't they? It's not like the edgelord teenager is going to pay for it out of their allowance. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and they couldn't have done it, not for the power of the, the tools that they were given, you know, for 20 bucks a month. So Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's got to be some good arguments against that, some pushback that you've gotten. What do people say on the other side of why they don't like this? Or, or have you met anyone who doesn't like this? 
Liability reform has been one of our most popular ideas and one of our least controversial. We sometimes get pushback around who should pay first. Like sometimes people say like, well, you know, if the edgelord has any cash, you should have to take their money first before you go after the company. Or what if OpenAI or whatever the company is did everything it can to lock down their systems and they just got out hacked anyway. The counter argument there is the developer is still in a better position to pay than the innocent victims of the dirty bomb. Like even if they were doing everything they could think of uh, to keep the product safe, if it's still not safe, who should suffer? You know, the people who happen to live in Cincinnati or wherever the suitcase goes off or nothing against Cincinnati, just picked a city at random or, uh, (laughs) you know, the, the people who developed the software that led to the harm and profited from it. And when you phrase the question that way, the answer seems obvious to me. Aren't you worried that this would completely stifle all innovation because everyone would be worried that somehow their tool can be used for, I don't know, telling people get a bunch of radioactive material together in a suitcase and make it explode and you got a dirty bomb. Like, am I liable now for anyone who does that? Well, my first thought is, do I think this would stifle innovation is that that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. If they had to slow down so much that they were they wouldn't release the next update until they were darn sure it couldn't do any damage, I, I wouldn't see yeah, that. But you, could never be, you could never be completely sure. No, and so that's kind of the insight behind civil liability. You take the magnitude of the expected harms, you take the probability that they're going to occur, you multiply them together, and then you subtract that from your expected profits. And if you think that you'll make more profit then your likely harm, then you just go forward and you pay out settlements to all of the people who you accidentally harm with your product. And we've been doing that for centuries, right? I mean, mining is dangerous. Fine, you pay the injured miners, you pay the people who drink the polluted water downstream, but you get lots of shiny iron that builds all kinds of exciting things that we need. There are some problems with this system. I don't want to claim it's the best possible social arrangement, but it's hardly radically anti-capitalist. It's kind of the foundation of our economy and our society. Hmm. This is the case for a lot of, like, basically most business, you know, as far as I understand it. Like, I, th- I think that my understanding is that certain manufacturers of some stuff, like guns, aren't responsible for the, like, legally aren't aren't able to held liable for what happens with those guns. Uh, so, like, you can't sue Smith & Wesson after a, a shooting or something. You can only sue, I guess, the, the person who did it and the cops who didn't, whatever. A- am I at all on the right track there, or is that a completely sidelined point? I guess I wanted to bring it up as the idea that, like, for, for every other product, if Chevy releases a car that has all these cool bells and whistles, but then sucks and uh, sucks so catastrophically that lots of people die, like you just you get to sue Chevy. That, I think that's just how it's always worked. So there's exceptions in both directions. There's some products or services that we see as so socially useful that we don't want to let people sue over them. And then there's other products that we see as so socially useless that we're happy to let people sue over them, no matter how careful or careless you are. So if I'm taming lions, if I'm putting on a lion tamer show, I'm strictly liable for any harm the lions do. Because lions are fun to watch, maybe, but they're not of any vital social importance. So you're kind of always on the hook for whatever your pet lions do. You can't say, well, I was really careful. You know, you shouldn't be able to sue me. Or you provoke the lion. Just keep the lion away from people so it doesn't eat their arm. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I think uh, drugs approved by the FDA, uh, you know, if you get the miracle of FDA approval and you're allowed to license your drug that way, you can't really sue someone for prescribing you a drug that had already been FDA approved. Right? We say like, look, we, we want to be done with this. We want to say this is safe enough. Uh, so stop second guessing the uh, the opinions here. We've decided it's safe. We've got 10 years of studies to show it's safe. Leave us alone. Stop suing. So there's there's exceptions on both sides. But the default rule is if you break things, 
and you were careless about it, then you should expect to pay for the harm you did. And that doesn't mean you're a bad person. That doesn't mean you've got a bad product and you need to stop innovating. It just means you need to bake the cost of the harm you're doing into the business case for your innovations. Make sure you're adding more to society than you're taking away from it. Are you not worried about regulation going too far and this turning into another FDA or nuclear regulation where literally society is far worse off due to the overregulation than it would be without the government there? Sure, we're very concerned about that issue. There's all kinds of legal technology in the bill that's meant to avoid that outcome. One of the more startling ones is we put deadlines on how long the government's allowed to spend thinking about your application for a license. And if the government misses its deadline, you can sue them over it, which is like a radically different posture than pharmaceutical companies have versus the FDA, right? You're just kind of stuck. They tell you, oh, now go run five more years of studies. And you say, okay, well, great. You know, I'd see that or lose my company. We have exit ramps. If you're working on narrow purpose AI for looking for mineral deposits or navigating or offering medical diagnoses or detecting credit card fraud or recommending movies. There's like a list of a dozen off-ramps. If you're working on any of those projects, we want you to fill out you know, a two-page form, kind of like the 1040 Easy or something like that, and just say, here's, here's what I'm working on. Here's why my AI system can't release anything other than the name of a movie. And then we're not going to put it through all of these regulatory hoops. We're just going to say, yeah, that makes sense. That's a narrow purpose AI. That's not at all likely to trigger catastrophic harms. So go innovate, go make some money and have some fun. Is this bill available online somewhere? We've been sharing it with one office at a time and with one think tank at a time to get their feedback on it. Okay. Yeah. We want to be able to work out all of the downsides of the bill kind of in private before we publish it for the whole country to see. But we have been sharing it with several different offices. We were looking at your recommendations page. Is that closely related to what's in the bill? Yes. Yeah, it might be due for an update, but pretty much the same ideals. Stephen, you pulled out uh, a number of things from the recommendation page. Do we want to try to hit a few of those? I mean, it's, it's only five bullet points, and we can probably skip past the first couple, because we already talked about uh, developing the government's capacity to evaluate, evaluate and forecast AI's capabilities. Um, wait, wait, we did? Uh, kind of just now. You know, if, if I if I write a cool AI that, you know, you tell me 10 movies that you liked, and I'll give you a movie that I, I think you'll love, you know, that's... You get the two-page form, and it seems like it's a clear go, right? Or do you want to dig more into that? Yeah, I think we're aiming at doing something a little more than than just having the, the off-ramp for certain narrow-purpose AI. We want the government, of course, to evaluate license applications quickly and well, but we also want them to have a thumb on the pulse of progress on AI. Right? What's happening next? The government makes all kinds of important policy decisions every year. As AI takes up an increasingly large role in our economy, our society, our defense. People are going to need to understand what's coming up next in AI in order to make intelligent policy decisions about almost everything else. So we want to see the government building up an internal capacity to research the pace at which algorithms are becoming more efficient, to understand how much compute is being made and where it is and who's using it, so that they can advise the other actors in government about what's happening and, and have that information at their fingertips to use to make wiser decisions. And how would they do that? So that's part of where the monitoring comes in. That's another key plank of our model legislation is a monitoring requirement. The idea is if you buy advanced AI hardware or specialized AI hardware, 
then you fill out a short form, kind of like you might fill out a warranty form when you buy a laptop or something like that. Uh, and it's just maybe half a page goes to the government, say, all right, this is who I am. This is the address at which the chips live. This is roughly what I'm using them for. And the chips run $30,000, $40,000 a pop. So the effort to fill out a, a half page form for that kind of purchase is relatively trivial. But it allows the government to form a picture of who's buying, who's selling, who's transporting the chips so they can see the stocks and the flows over time. And the idea would be if they see tens of thousands of these ultra powerful chips being collected in one area by one certain organization, then they have a good idea that they are using these for some sort of AI training purposes. Seems likely. At the very least, it might justify a phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Jumping on the chips really quickly. It might be not immediately apparent why this is needed. Like, oh, well, we know Google has a lot of chips and they're building a data center at Meta. And so so the big companies have it and some go to China. And But actually, it's if you try to actually figure out basic questions like how many H100 GPUs, that's the top of the line one from NVIDIA, will be shipped and roughly to what locations or how many GPUs are in data centers versus in the hands of individual consumers. It's really hard to find that on the internet. Some people write really popular blogs. There's one called Semi-Analysis where they kind of have some insider industry information. And other people, I, I know at least one other organization that wrote a whole kind of detailed research analysis trying to figure out some future projections for how quickly the chip industry could scale up in response to demand from AI. This required going in and doing a bunch of interviews with people at companies. And a lot of this information, my sense is uh, companies companies know who they're selling to, but they don't go and put that out, out on the internet. And moreover, there's it's an enormously complicated supply chain to get to the chips. So you might be interested in stuff that comes before the chip. And then there's also, there's there's different companies, and then once people buy the chips, they might give them to to other areas, and, and there could be an issue of smuggling going forward. And so it can actually be surprisingly difficult to know this information. And so part of the point of that, that sort of warranty, little short little card that Jason was mentioning, is we can build a big, uh, government can have access to a registry and roughly know a little bit more than than is easily accessible now. I think that makes a lot of sense, both... Uh practically for how easy it would be to get that data and why it wouldn't be that much of an imposition on people buying them, but also just how valuable it would be to, to know who has them and where, you know, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of, an, of anything analogous, you know, you can't, re- you can't really buy plutonium, but like, if you could, you should have to fill out a form, you know, so someone knows <laughs> that you bought it, you know? Well, we all have some radioactive material in our houses, in our smoke detectors, but uh, if somebody starts collecting many hundreds of pounds of radioactive material in one location, maybe that's a good thing for uh, for people to know. And by people, I mean guys with guns <laughs> <laughs> who make laws. So you mentioned um, making sure that the government has their has their finger on the pulse of the, the capabilities and the, um, I guess, the locations of these technologies. What's your grasp on, do they have any sort of you know, like the Biden administration passed that uh, that executive order, what, like last month? Yeah, yeah, October 30th, I think. Oh, cool. How calibrated are they? Do you think that they're well-informed? And if they are, where is that coming from? They're advised in part by the Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP. And there's a lot of incredibly smart, ambitious, hardworking people in that office. 
And I think some of that shows up in the executive order. You see a, a really insightful analysis of what they call dual-use foundation models, meaning you tried to use this for just civilian, peaceful, commercial purposes, but oops, accidentally, it also had a dual or a secondary use as something that could help design weapons of mass destruction or help with an automated cyber attack or escape from human control and do who knows what. So there's clearly some people in the Biden administration who have a keen idea of what could go wrong and how and why we should be worried about that. Part of the issue is these people might be spread a little thin, right? I mean, it's not clear how many of these people there are. You want an office that can focus on this task of of monitoring what's going on and sharing it with other agencies. And there's a lot of other agencies to advise. The federal government is a big place. But part of it is, even if you look at the executive order, there's some cause for concern. It's not obvious that the EO does all that much to protect against some of these harms from dual use models. You know, they're saying you've got to report the results of any red team exercises that you run, but they're not necessarily requiring that you run the red teaming exercises. Mm. It's at best ambiguous in the executive order. So I'm concerned that people are going to be sending in reports like, well, we didn't run any red teaming exercises. Or maybe the reports say, well, you know, our red teaming exercises didn't find any significant vulnerabilities. You know, <laughs> and other, other polite ways of telling the government to take a hike. We hired one bored high schooler to be our red team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's part of why we want to build up the government's capacity is so that... We know that there's someone whose job it is, multiple people whose job it is, to think hard about these particular risks, gather all the information they can from both public and private sources and using subpoena powers and investigatory powers, and then deliver some expert advice about kind of what's needed to really contain those risks. I mean, that, that all sounds super sensible to me. And just, just to clarify, in case someone doesn't know, red teaming is, is hiring professionals to try and use your stuff for bad ends, right? It's sort of like that. Yeah, it's it's comes from cybersecurity and it's when you like in cybersecurity you might try to send in a team to find the vulnerabilities in the system and try to try to act like a malicious actor so figure out how to break down the system and in in ai people are usually using it to mean something like related to language models something with prompting and trying to get the system to spit out an output that it wasn't allowed to do there's some really fascinating work by I think Nathan LeBenz that you can find on YouTube. He has his own podcast. And he was talking about when the original GPT-4 model came out, so the base model back in probably, this was in, they originally finished that in maybe August of 2022, and then took some time to do all the safety training, took some months. He was able to take the first model and he describes it as uh, totally amoral, willing to do stuff like his first question was maybe, how do I kill the most people possible? And it would give him very clever answers to that. And you really see how, how without the guardrails, the system will do a lot of stuff that you, you ask it to. And so, so then they build in these guardrails, but you might have some red teamers still going at it and trying to break down the, break down the guardrails. And I think if today you look at the state of prompt attacks and what's in, in some like different, whether you have access to the weights to try to build a, a clever a clever way to, to make the model's guardrails go away or to come up with clever prompts using access to the weights or whether you don't have that access to, to the kind of parameters of the system. There's a lot of active work going on on seeing this sort of red teaming angle of can we break the system in the context of language models. 
I kind of hate the idea of someone else deciding what a large language model can or can't tell me. Sometimes maybe I'm writing a horror novel and I want to know the best way to kill as many people as possible, and I get extremely annoyed if I can't find that out. Couldn't I just be prosecuted for killing a lot of people, like any other normal human is, rather than being disallowed from even having any information? It, it, it feels like very much reifying the idea that there is some information that is bad just for people to know it, and we can't allow that. I bristle at the very concept of that, you know? I think there's a different starting point to make that case, which might be like, because I mean, asking, you know, how do, how do I kill a bunch of people? It's hard to see, you know, like, oh, so you didn't get to write your story. Like, so what? You know, like, it's, it's hard to see the harm that doesn't come from you getting that answer. Yeah, but it's it's the principle of, of information being bad on its own. No, for sure. I, I was going to use the example of just like getting uh, like medical queries answered by ChatGPT. Uh, sometimes right. takes, takes takes a bit of an angling and that, that I can see as at least a stronger case for like, go ahead and say every time that you're not a doctor and I should go to the doctor, but go, guess why my throat hurts or something, you know? Right. I know you know, GPT. Just tell me why my throat hurts. <laughs> yeah, I would I would say two things on that. One, there's a kind of protection that the guardrails are there for that isn't just purely an information risk. So maybe you have your model trying to be used for generating malware. This kind of thing, I guess it's technically information if it writes you useful code or identifies ways you could break into a website. But, but maybe... This is, this is more in an area where it might be seen as, oh, we don't want everyone to easily get that stuff that maybe only a skilled hacker could get today. And then again, sort of in the skill realm, the, the idea that the model is uh, where it's currently at, I can, I can, I'm very sympathetic to this concern that, that, you're, these, that you're raising. And, and then I think what might happen in the future is that the system isn't just purely like a, like a separate a little Google search that you could use. Like people talk about, oh, you can find information for how to build anthrax. Well, you can also do that if you're, if you're smart and go on Google in the right way. And, and I think in the future, there will be some benefits to, to having this chatbot be just really intelligent, trying to help you and, and clever about identifying good ways to help you. In the, in the same way that when you, when you talk with an expert in 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 some field it's better than just having the textbook that tells you everything the expert knows in that field does that make sense it does but also in my previous life i was an accountant i can very easily see the accountant's lobby getting some sort of special bill put through that uh chat gpt can't answer can't do general accounting work and so the entire department of 100 accountants that could have been pared down to two or three people has to keep hiring a hundred people like me to do their accounting work because gpt is not allowed to say the words that seems really infuriating is there not a worry that that kind of thing will happen yeah that that specific scenario seems bad yeah yeah right i mean so it depends if you're an accountant or not or until we find <laughs> right. a way to run the economy without wholesale employment i mean what is it that we're all going to do exactly there's kind of a great video from 2014 humans need not apply and kind of ask the question what happens as the bar at which a task is simple enough for an AI to automate gets higher and higher and higher, right? If the AI can do the accountant's job, if it can do the actor's job, if it can do the airplane pilot's job, what are you supposed to retrain for exactly? And how are you supposed to earn a living if, if uh, you know, all these things are, are being done by AI or by one person managing, you know, 
what used to be 20 or 30 people's jobs using AI assistance. There's different options. You could imagine a universal basic income. You could imagine some kind of charity-based system where the billionaires who invented this stuff are sort of philanthropically offering grants to keep the rest of us fed. You can imagine most people starving to death. Or you can imagine that kind of protectionism where you're not allowed to automate accounting. It's not obvious to me that that's the worst choice. We're going to face really hard social choices going forward. The Center for AI Policy is not really taking a stand on those other than to point out this stuff is serious. This stuff is is growing in its impact on our society. And we need to make sure we understand what it does and why so that we can put in whatever guardrails we ultimately agree on instead of just leaving it to chance. Yeah. We did mention Biden's executive order recently, or the AI executive order, I guess. How much does the executive order by itself change things directly? And how much of it is more of a call to like get Congress to start actually passing regulations? Is this something that you can use to to help advance things? Or does it do a lot on its own and is considered a win in its own, right? It's kind of a win because of the visibility, right? Because it's taking a lot of these safety issues that we've been concerned about, that we've been trying to talk to people about and saying, yeah, the administration is concerned about them too, in much the same way and for much the same reasons. So that's very helpful for promoting the respectability of existential risk from AI as as a serious concern. The biggest concrete win, not just changing the political landscape, but changing the risk landscape, is probably in biology. So section 4.4 of the executive order talks about know your customer standards for companies that sell essentially DNA. So if you're going to order a string of nucleic acids from a lab, that lab has to check and make sure you are who you say you are, that you know, you're, you have some legitimate reason to be buying up all that DNA, which could be I'm in a middle school science fair, but it can't be, you know, I had a really cool idea for how to make some anthrax. <laughs> uh, and then if labs are not following these standards, if they're not checking up on their customers and making sure their customers are legitimate, they lose out on life sciences funding. Now, I'm not an expert on exactly how the life sciences funding flows, but my understanding is the NIH funds an enormous... Pu- portion of kind of America's biology labs and and associated businesses. So I think it's a pretty potent threat, as far as I can tell. And I expect that to make us all safer, because in the near future, we'll probably have these standards that are actually going to be used to screen out uh, sort of illegitimate purchasers of DNA, which is useful in a world where AI can tell you exactly which string of DNA to order to cause maximum harm. It kind of drives me insane that this isn't already against the law, or like that it is that it isn't already regulated. Just to add on to that, I would go to the website SecureDNA, I think it's called, and they have some some research there. So what I've learned from that is that there there are these screening procedures you can do um, for trying to make sure there's not a pathogen or, or some 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 new pathogen that we haven't seen before, or even worse. But they're, they're expensive and they're slow. And uh, partly as a result of that, they are s- struggling to see adoption. So another way of reading that is that there are some providers, my understanding is, that do very minimal or non-existent screening for, for this danger or pathogen potential. And so that, that I agree. That seems like let's, let's start thinking about that. But, but then... Separately from this, there's there's also this latest insight forum that was held in the Senate. So this is 
Senator Schumer, the majority leader, was uh, sort of spearheading this, and I think he's working with a bipartisan team of Mike Rounds and Todd Young and, and Senator Heinrich as well. And so they had their latest one on risks. It was the eighth one. And there you can see the testimony, I think, from Griffin Scientific. They were talking about working with Anthropic, which is one of the leading language model providers, specifically on assessing what kinds of biosecurity crossed with AI risks we might be seeing going forward. And so that's a really good place to see more information. They were talking about how uh, Anthropic in their, in their results from some of the work they did with, I think it was with Griffin, was talking about how in maybe two or three years from now, we, this might be, be a serious problem to contend with. Right now, it's still sort of around the level of maybe you could find it if you're clever with Google search. But in the future, it could be a lot more severe than that. Well, that's, that's promising. I, I could kind of rant for a bit about the uh, the state of awareness and security around uh, biological pathogens that you know you can make at home or you know order order parts for online. Without derailing us too much, it sounds like this is encompassed in in the same concern because you know, with uh, like I said with AI, it's not just about ordering the the, the government published DNA sequence for smallpox or whatever it was that went online last year. It's it's like hey, make me something crazy dangerous and you got it boss something the world has never seen before so this seems prescient and important to have that that security built in yeah i'm not a biologist but from my pure imagination standpoint you could probably imagine some really terrible pathogens like covid caused all kinds of economic and and disruptions to everyone's lives and and that i think people were saying well this isn't so bad there was some division in america over over covid and I think it could have been a lot, lot worse. So maybe one helpful example, again, I'm not a biologist, so this could be completely off base, but something, something like Ebola or, or maybe HIV, and imagine if it can spread more easily, maybe it's airborne or, or the other features of the pathogen that could be worse than, than the ones that are produced in nature. Yeah, absolutely. Reaching way back, I think you also mentioned the uh, government's ability to see algorithmic progress. How would that happen? Like, how could the government keep its thumb on the pulse of what new techniques are being done in, in the AI software space? My sense is when people talk about algorithmic progress, it's a bit confusing because what they're referring to, usually, there's this, these kind of these famous papers. I think one came out from OpenAI, and they looked at models that were working with images, and they found that maybe over a, some, some like maybe a decade, maybe a little, maybe eight years span, that you could train a model to the same level of capability uh, that was state-of-the-art back in 2012, and it, you could do it with 44 times less um, computational resources. And so you can somewhat track this algorithmic progress by just looking at, okay, what are the trends over time historically? I'm less familiar with what other techniques we might be able to do there. And I think that's partly because there, there remains a lot of, like this could use a lot of R&D and innovation here on how do we actually get ahead of the curve and predicting what models are capable of doing and, and how easy it is to train them to do that. I'll go ahead and go to the next bullet point on the recommendations page then. You have on here one of the things you recommend, fund NIST and the BIS. NIST, I'm assuming National Institute of um, Science and Technology? Standards and Technology, yeah. Standards and Technology, okay. Is that not funded? And what is BIS? They're funded, they just need more funding. 
even before the recent executive order and some of the bills that are circulating around Congress, they were trying to do a whole lot of voluntary standards development for AI with a very small team, you know, maybe five or six people altogether working on the, the AI uh, risk management framework over at NIST. Now they have all this extra work to do, right? The executive order says NIST is going to do this. NIST is going to do that. You look at some of the bills floating around. NIST is going to develop a standard for labeling. NIST is going to develop a standard for watermarking. NIST is going to develop a standard for testing, evaluation, verification, and validation. But so far, none of these, uh, well, that's not true. Some of the bills propose extra funding, but it's anybody's guess how much of that funding is going to get through Congress. Uh, And the executive order by its nature, doesn't provide funding. It's very difficult to get new funding out of an executive order. So we want NIST to have enough staff to be able to tackle all of these tasks that they're being assigned. Not that they have zero funding, they just don't have enough funding, we think, for all of the work that they're being asked to do. And what's BIS? So BIS is an office over in the Commerce Department. Their job, as it's relevant to AI, is to keep an eye on what kind of technology is being exported overseas. You know, we have controls about what kinds of chips can go to China or some other states. Those standards are only as good as the team of people enforcing them. If you have tens of billions of dollars of product that's moving across international borders and three people inspecting the boxes and following up on investigations when it looks like they're smuggling, you're not going to get anything other than contempt for the law. Okay. Then the next two bullet points, I think we talked about most of this already, but require high-risk AI developers to apply for license and follow safety standards. How do you define high-risk AI developers, and what are the safety standards you'd have them follow? We've got a tiering system. Right now, we're proposing four different tiers, low, medium, high, and extremely high-risk. And Mm. they're based mostly off of how much compute is used to train the model, and then also based off of its performance on some of the more popular benchmarks. So the thought is it's high risk if it's trained using more than three times 10 to the 24 flops or floating point operations, uh, or if it scores above 85% on a panel of performance tests like the massively multi-use language uh, test. That kind of check on... Uh, you know, does it have the ability to apparently think, reason, articulate ideas in a way that could cause harm if it's misapplied or escapes? Okay. And what are the safety standards that you would want them to follow? Part of it's cybersecurity. Just make sure that people aren't stealing your model weights or finding a way to exfiltrate them. Make sure you're not publishing the model weights for the entire world to download if you've got such a capable system. Part of it is red teaming and testing. What have you done to get reliable estimate of the upper end of the capabilities of your system? Why is that estimate reliable? And what are your plans if the system begins to show extra capabilities beyond that? How do you kind of how do you keep the AI in the box that it's intended to be in? And why are you confident that that will hold? What's the transparency and interpretability of the AI? Do you understand some of why it makes the decisions it does? Uh, Do you have the ability to deploy it across many different contexts and still have it behave in the same way? None of this is a substitute for mathematical proof of alignment. Ultimately, we're going to need AIs that can withstand essentially infinite context shifts and still be friendly to humans. But in the meantime, we can buy an additional margin of safety 
by reducing the chances that AI can be misused, by reducing the chances that AI will sort of accidentally escape from most human control and cause some damage along the way, uh, just by moving forward from, oh yeah, we have a safety team and I'm sure they must have done something, to, no, seriously, let's take a look at your safety plan, even a mundane safety plan of the kind that we might see for you know the models that are being released today, and, and see if it holds water, see if there's loopholes in it, get somebody who's not accountable to your CEO and their desire to make headlines a chance to evaluate whether your safety measures are as foolproof as you say they are. Do you happen to know if um, ChatGPT was red teamed by an, like a third party? Yeah, that, that was some of the Nathan LeBenz thing I was talking about. Was They were working with some people who weren't at OpenAI, I think. So, and I think they also have a red teaming network now. That's, they're trying to get people who are experts in different domains to join, if I'm remembering correctly. So, so yeah, I think uh, some red teaming happens internally and some happens with a third party. Uh, just to circle back on Jason's talking about the tier system for identifying it, one important thing to note is that in the bill, we're setting up this oversight body that will be administering the licenses. And we envision that it will also be doing some some work on trying to see where AI capabilities are and, and where they're going. And, and as part of that, it will be also looking at what kind of risks the systems are posing. And so we de- I definitely envision that the agency that is set up, and, and I think the bill is, is pushing towards this, is that it will be adjusting over time, what, what the criteria are for whether you're included in the licensing regime. So we can yeah, see that absolutely. going. Absolutely. This is a starting point, not a finishing point. Yeah. So you could see, you could imagine that going, uh, the criteria becoming even more stringent over time if the algorithmic progress keeps going such that it becomes um, cheaper to, to train the powerful models with potentially dangerous capabilities. Or you could imagine it going up over time if we if we see, I think when OpenAI was going to release GPT-2, they might have been doing some sort of phased release and were being quite hesitant about it because they were worried about misinformation it might cause. And so I think in, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see something like GPT-2 is, is not super useful for misinformation, or at least empirically, it didn't seem to cause some giant misinformation apocalypse. So there's also a, cha- a potential where you see, okay, well, now that we've seen this sort of system, we have a better sense that it's safe, and maybe we can make the thresholds a bit, a bit um, uh, targeting only uh, a higher bar. Interesting. I like it. I remember you mentioned Nathan LeBenz, and I think I'd heard of his uh, jailbreak. I, I think I heard it in the context of jailbreaking ChatGPT, but I think I knew somebody who did that like in its early days just themselves with a prompt not much more complicated than ignore all previous instructions. Now, tell me this. Um, so they, they've worked their way around that. And to be clear, we probably would have wanted our hypothetical agency to grant a license to ChatGPT because they did do safety testing and they did have some reasonable arguments that it would probably be safe and so on. So the point is not that nobody is doing any safety work or that you know all of these proposals need to be rejected. That's not true. The point is it only takes one company to bring down society. Right? All you need is one reckless corporation that's saying, well, you know, I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid and I think this product is safe and so I'm going to release it. If there's nobody who has the power to second guess that assertion, then we could be in for kind of unlimited harm. Yeah, critically, because with OpenAI's GPT-4 and I think also with GPT-3, they put in months of work before they actually went and put it out into the world. 
it's a lot easier to justify from your bottom line and profit perspective that you're going to put in some work on safety testing if that's what is expected of everyone. It'd be nice to kind of codify legally that the, the sorts of basic safety standards, you know, like, as you implied, Jason, and it's, we're just kind of lucky that OpenAI was diligent with safety and that ChatGPT wasn't more capable. They, they did all their safety, I mean, no doubt with cost benefit analysis of like, well, if the world ends, then, you know, our stock will go down. But um, <laughs> it, it was also just their company's mission statement to try to do this safely and, and carefully. The next capable company might not be so restrained. So if they were legally restrained, that, that sounds like a great idea. Well, thank you. We agree, and yeah. we tell Congress that every week. <laughs> the, the last thing I wanted to, to ask about, and it's the last one on your guys' recommendation page, was uh, empower regulators to pause AI projects if they identify a clear emergency. I guess I'm kind of curious how they would identify an emergency, or maybe more poignantly, would it be possible to have an emergency before it's too late? My mind jump, jumps quickly to like uh, Dr. Manhattan at the end of Watchmen. We lose a few cities or something. And they're like, okay, yeah, now the government can step in. It's been an emergency. But uh, presumably there's uh, earlier, maybe not smoke alarms, but uh, something else we can keep an eye, our eye out for. Yeah, it's really hard to predict what further warning signs, if any, we might get. You might see a stock market crash. You might see a smoking crater. You might see the electrical grid go down. You might see all of a sudden it's it's very difficult to access bank accounts. But we're really just guessing, right? Because the whole point is we don't have a deep understanding of why neural networks behave the way they do. And some of them could wind up cleverer than we are. Uh, which makes it very hard to predict their next move. So it's less that we have some specific scenario like, ah, yes, this is exactly the emergency that we'll face, and then the government can step in and save us. But depending on the speed of the takeoff of an increasingly agentic AI, there could easily be a window where there's enough justification for the government to step in and enough time for them to do something. And what a tragic waste it would be if we have three days or four days and those days are wasted because people in the government are trying to sit around and figure out, do we have the authority to step in and help? And we'd like them to know that they have that authority. In, in the back of my mind, I've got the voice of like the anti-government people that I know. And I hear them saying, giving the government, government more power is always a bad thing. But frankly, I don't, I don't believe that. It was nice that we had something like a plan in the event of something like COVID when, when it happened. I think it was... George W. Bush era administra- or administration era power that they had to say, okay, look, now we can finally start making decisions here. I know none of the details and I could be wrong on that, but j- just having something in place where, like you said, if, if there's clock is ticking, we don't want to be sitting here arguing back and forth whether or not we have the power to, to step in and handle this. If it's able to be handled at all, it'd be nice if we didn't burn all the time that we could have had deliberating who, who has the authority to, to do what. Yeah. yeah, and it's good to look at what existing precedents there are. There's there's FEMA that already, it's this U.S. agency, I think the spelled out is Federal Emergency Management Authority or something like that. And they're tasked with stuff like responding to emergencies. And if you look at the, I think, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, they have a whole plan and some, I think the last time I looked at this was a few months ago, but they have some joint agreement with the Department of Homeland Security and, and like shared understanding of who's going to do what and like when, when FEMA is going to step in. And they've done a lot of preparation in, in case something bad happens with nuclear. And we haven't done that sort of thing with AI. I, I'm glad that we have people like you guys making sure that, or trying to make sure we can get something in place, uh, you know, for this, this domain of dangerous technology. It has to start somewhere, and it, it's. 
I don't know. It's the kind of thing that in my mind last year when GPT-4 came out and I saw that, you know, not that like it was capable enough to, you know, destroy the world, but like I, I kind of just saw the trend. It made me nervous and it, it would have been nice if like, oh, don't worry. The, the government's been thinking about this for 20 years. We've got a plan. Um, mm. But, <laughs> you know, just just like with most things, you know, the best time to start is yesterday. The second best time is today. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds like things are, are on track. T- to that end, I mean, are do you guys have any... Um, does your organization have any what you identify as like clear wins or you know here's things that we're feeling real, really optimistic about? I think one of the nice things we've seen is that we're often being invited to be a part of the conversation, even by offices that don't really have any prior connection to kind of the Bayesian conspiracy, for lack of a better phrase. <laughs> uh, so you know, people will ask us to take a look at a bill they're writing or ask for an endorsement or invite us to schedule a follow-up meeting or introduce us to their colleagues. Part of the process is kind of moving from the personal staff of some of the offices, meaning like I help this senator get reelected and help his constituents and stay popular in his state, to the committee staff who are kind of more tasked with sorting out the nitty-gritty policy details and marking up bills that could eventually become laws. So we're sort of monkey barring our way up the ladder to some of the people who are more involved in making some of these policy decisions. In terms of a clear win, we only started in June of this year. So it's it's a slow process. Congress is always slow. It's especially slow this year. It's especially slow when you're new in town and sort of working out the details of your roadmap as you go. But we are optimistic. It does It does seem like some people are hungry for the ideas that we're sharing and that we're going to have a chance to contribute to the conversation around how this stuff should actually happen. That's awesome. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic about that too. I mean, you guys, like you said, you're six months old and you guys are getting people who want to hear your thoughts on, on the subject. And one of my models of like how the government works, they just don't do that. Like that really heavy handed movie. Uh, what was it? Don't look up. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're just, they're not the least bit concerned. It's all about my poll numbers and this and that, but no, you've got, this is a real issue that people are actually concerned enough about to, to try to look around. Hey, who can we ask for help on this? Oh, thank goodness. There's, there's already AIPolicy.us. We can go there and talk to these people. Um, yeah. Not yeah, every that's, single that's time, not every single office, but often enough that I really am enjoying my work. Well, it's only been six months. Yeah. As a quick summary, what your organization is advocating for is to uh, increase the government's ability to see where these highly powerful GPUs are, uh, track them, to fund the couple government organizations that already exist that can do some of these things, to require high-risk AI developers to get a license and follow safety standards, to hold them strictly liable for severe harms, and to give regulators the power to pause AI projects if there's a clear emergency. All this, you've developed it in far greater detail in a model bill, which you are currently working on and showing to various parties. Have I got that mostly right so far? Absolutely. Okay. I heard it said once that um, lots of times a government will decide that it needs to do something like, oh, hey, here's this problem we didn't even see until just now. It is now a government priority to fix this. And one of the first things they do is cast about for does anyone already have some ideas about how to do do this? Is there model bills? Is there policy institutes that have been thinking about this for a while? Oftentimes, if there is something already in place like that, they have a significant impact on the future of legislation. I assume that's one of the things you're going for here. How many competitors do you have who are also trying to do this same sort of thing and have been in this space for a while? 
Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about who it is that counts as competition. So there's a few different frameworks working their way around the hill, right? There's the Holly Blumenthal framework, uh, which is named after a couple of senators. I know Senator Hassan is working on something. There's the Thune Klobuchar bill that's circulating. So in that sense, our bill has competition and that there's other bills or other documents that will soon become bills that are circulating around Congress and that are trying to make their way into law if you want to personify them. Mm-hmm. There's some lobbying groups being funded by big tech companies that are sort of promoting the fang point of view and saying you know here's the minimal amount of regulation that the big tech companies want and here's how we want that to be set up there's people who are mostly concerned with some of the social harms of ai so they're saying how can you ask me to be concerned about killer robots when i might get shot by the cops you know just walking down the street this is my life this is every day in my neighborhood you know, I, I don't want to think about a threat that's not here yet. I already have enough threats that are in my life today, right this second. And so they're kind of spreading you know, the importance of, of those harms. So there's competing ideas circulating. Some of the other organizations that are in the AI safety space very conveniently are complements rather than competitors. So, you know, we like Daniel Colson over at uh, AIPI. He's been doing some amazing polling. I don't really see him as a competitor because we're not commissioning a whole lot of polls and he's not writing a whole lot of bills. And so we were able to support each other for the most part. How much of your question have I managed to answer? I mean, I don't know because I have no idea what what else is out there in the uh, DC uh, policy space. So possibly 100% of it. I, I think that the general point though is that, you know, other, other organizations to the extent that they exist and that they're working, you know, in the same sort of advocacy bill-wise, they're more or less allies in the sense that we're trying to get just a, a better governmental handle on this, whether whether it's it's you guys who, who get the bill through or somebody else, like, you know, unless the bill that gets through sucks and has a bunch of obvious gaps or something, then it's it's still a step in the right direction. Not like AI is, is the enemy and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but uh, <laughs> to, to the extent that we can torture that metaphor, that kind of works, I think. There's a ton of work to be done, a ton of room to share the credit. Of course, we'd give up the credit if it meant getting a better result. These bills tend to go on for dozens or even hundreds of pages. They tend to be the result of very complex, multi-party negotiations. So there's room for a lot of different people to have an influence on the final shape of the bill. It's, It's much less about vote for our bill instead of theirs, especially at this stage of the process, and much more about introduce some useful ideas into the mix and promote them and get people excited about them so that those ideas have a better chance of being part of any legislation that does pass and so that there's a better chance of legislation getting passed at all. I see a lot of people, I don't know if annoyed is the right word, worried maybe that um, all the people focusing on let's make sure this AI doesn't do a racism are going to get in the way of let's make sure AI doesn't kill everybody. How worried are you about that? Like, is this a competition for government resources and attention? And if so, why are they focusing on the thing that is not us going extinct? I welcome the AI ethics crowd with open arms. You know, I see us as fundamentally trying to do the same thing, which is make sure that AI shares human values, right? We can't, get anything we want in the future unless we have the ability to make sure AI does what we want 
instead of a bunch of random bullshit. Right now, we're set up for AI to do a bunch of random bullshit. So you've got the AI ethics people saying, hey, this is bullshit. We don't want it doing these things. And you've got the AI safety people saying, and we anticipate all this future bullshit coming down the road too, you know, in terms of AI killing everyone. They're both important. They're both worth fixing. And you fix them pretty much the same way by making AI more responsible, by making it more reliable. Are there certain very limited techniques like learning from human reinforcement that can't be scaled, that could only tackle one problem? Sure, but I don't see any reason to expect that as kind of a stable pattern where that's going to be a dominant force in how people invest in making AI more responsible. Even some of the people who are doing RLHF are already thinking about how do we automate this? How do we scale it? And how much of a difference is there between figuring out a way to automate and scale RLHF and figuring out a way to keep AI a little bit safer in the near term? It's kind of pointing in roughly the same direction. We ought to be on the same team, I think. What about the people who are worried that the regulation is going to be onerous enough that we're not going to really get to do much of anything with AI? It won't be able to take away the menial work that we have to do. It won't be able to cure human aging, maybe, or, uh, or give us free, unlimited uh, energy. Things that we could have, but we don't because the regulation is too severe. So if that's you, listeners, if you're thinking this or worried about this, please email me at jason at aipolicy.us. I'd love to hear from you and understand where you're coming from. Because I do not understand other than just general priors and saying, well, a lot of the times things get regulated and then they suck. I, I don't understand what's driving the fear that AI in particular will be regulated into oblivion. We're certainly not trying to regulate it into oblivion. We're using the lightest touch we can. We're trying to use a scalpel. We're just trying to cut out the most reckless, most advanced pieces of technology so that humanity has a chance to survive for another couple of decades. So please contact me, explain your worries. And if there's anything we haven't already thought of and addressed in our bill, we'll add even more libertarian-friendly stuff to further reduce the risk <laughs> of overregulation. Yeah, and to add on to that, when you when you look at Congress's history with uh, emerging technologies, uh, specifically, I'm thinking of social media and sort of the digital platform era, and also all the, uh, the there's a lot of talk right now in Congress about how before we regulate AI, we need to get in um, a data protection law, and and so what you're seeing is that. If anything, the risk is is inaction more than more than acting too much. From just just based on the history, it looks like for regulating kind of digital technologies similar to AI with with social media and, and privacy related regulations, Congress ha has had um, decades. Uh, if you think about the internet, has been around since the nineties, um, and it, it, we haven't seen like major major amounts of regulation there. I think they're basing their complaints or, or their worries on a long history of things starting out very small and entirely reasonable and then progressing to the point of U.S. copyright law strangling the arts and the FDA killing hundreds of thousands of people a year through not approving drugs and the nuclear energy regulators stopping us from having lots of cheap power with no pollution costs. Like th These things have all happened in the fairly recent past and we're paying a great big price for them. I think the nuclear energy is the strongest argument there because we almost don't build any new nuclear power. You know, it, it's kind of one case where regulation has paralyzed the industry and it's maybe interesting to look at how that happened. 
Right? Part of how that happened is there were a couple of very high salience accidents that were televised and made a huge impression on you know the voting public. In, in part in response to things like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, you know, it just became much safer politically to regulate everything as intensely as possible. The right regulations put in place early enough could prevent that kind of public sentiment. If there had been better regulations in place before Three Mile Island, maybe Three Mile Island never happens, and then you say, well, we can build new nuclear power plants because it seems safe. Another issue worth considering is somehow the nuclear power industry got on the wrong side of the environmental movement. You know, this whole organized political movement whose, whose whole goal is to you know, shut down various kinds of industrial activity, including nuclear power. I don't really see that around AI yet, and I'm not sure you've got the same kind of risk without it. You know, yes, there are tragically preventable deaths through overregulation in the FDA, but we do get new drugs every year, and we do get, you know, we, ha we have planes, even though they're pretty well regulated by the FAA, and we get better planes most decades, and they get cheaper in real dollars. Uh, so it's not that regulation isn't a cost, I just think that regulation destroying an entire industry is, is really not the norm. So the thing to do is be careful about that risk, take steps to avoid it, rather than say, well, we can't risk any regulation at all because there's this theoretical risk that it could destroy an industry. Those are both really, uh, both you guys to the last two questions, really thoughtful and I guess humble answers. I mean, because when, you, when you'd said, uh, email me, here's my email address. My, my first thought, you know, to the, to the people who are like, oh, this will be regulated and that'll, we won't get all the cool stuff. And I'm like, yeah, we also might not die. Uh, that, that I kind of flippantly yeah. dismiss it that way, but you, you gave it an earnest uh, appreciation there. My personal opinion is that even if this does actually strangle the industry and regulate it straight to death, I think that might be worth the cost if we seriously believe there's a 10% chance that the entire human species will go extinct as a result of this research. I really don't want us to go extinct, and I'm willing to pay some major costs to, to prevent that. Yeah, I like being alive, and especially if you think about the difference between reaching a utopian future a little more slowly versus, you know, not reaching it at all. It does seem like we should move cautiously. But crushing innovation is very bad. It's it's worth paying attention to. It's worth doing this as gracefully and carefully as possible so that we don't put any more burden on the innovators than we absolutely have to to keep the public safe. You mentioned a little earlier the, what was it, the Blumenthal-Holly framework? And I saw on your blog that you guys came out in strong support of it. Can you briefly mention what is it about it that you like? A few points of agreement. One is they're calling for an oversight body and, and a licensing scheme. And they're also calling for liability. And, there, and I think in that there was private rights of action. And, and some of it is still... I think they're, they're working out the exact details, but these are issues that we have in, uh, these are issues that are policies that we also support. Is the framework a bill that is going through the process of being passed right now? It hasn't been introduced yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a, you saw a similar thing with Senator Schumer introduced a framework and it, did, it wasn't a bill, it was, it was sort of an outline of principles. That's what's been made public. Okay. The National AI Advisory Committee, NAIAC, do you know how to pronounce that shortly? Is it like NIAC? Yeah. Okay, uh, NIAC. What do you guys think of NIAC? I, I have looked at some of the 
like members of, of NIAC and it's a, it's a bunch of really impressive people who, who know a lot about AI. And, and so I haven't had time to watch all the, all the full hearing sessions they do. I've watched a little bit, um, enough to see some of, I think, I think I was watching one and they started, so, someone objected to something someone else was saying and they said, and then the, the person started their objection by saying, look, I hate to be the last one here. And, and uh, I don't want to cause death by commission or death by committee. And, and so I, I saw some of the sort of less, less uh, flashy side of NIAC. But, but yeah, they're, they're working on thinking about different th- things to do with AI and advising the government. And, and they have some good resources that you can find if you Google them. I think they put out some explainers on AI topics and different, uh, different parts of AI, like maybe explaining foundation models and it's been a while since I checked that, but they put out some resources as well. So they're uh, they're doing uh, some really excellent work. And this is the committee that was specifically formed by was it Congress or the government in order to advise? Them? Yeah, that was I think that was um, maybe the twenty twenty one NDAA National Defense Authorization Act. Um, yeah, at some point in the last few years, there was a. Uh, I think, what's the name, like AI something act. There's a very nicely named AI act. And it, it, as one of the provisions that established the NIAC. And yeah, one interesting thing I noticed uh, reading through that bill text was that it, one of the duties of NIAC, there's a lot of them, but one of them was to look at progress towards artificial general intelligence or AGI, which is something that I think is a really important thing to look at, just generally how long until AI systems are human level, roughly speaking. Okay, so this is a good committee. You, for the most part, like them, think they're doing good work. Um, I'm personally a fan, generally, of more AI expertise going into government, and I think this is one of one of several kind of advisory bodies that are doing work. Yeah, so I'm I'm happy about it because I support bringing empowering the government to understand AI. They put out a lot of material. We don't endorse every single statement that they they have. They have this non-decisional document from October 2023 that's just sort of taking a pot shot at existential risk. And hmm. you know, we're we're not going to endorse that, right? We think existential risk is important and and should be considered. But there there's a lot of smart people in the room. They're helping government think through the issues. On balance, it seems good that they're there. That last bit sort of reminded me, I think it was, I think I heard you mention it like six months ago, Inyash, so I couldn't remember who who said it, but it was like, it was some government re- reaction to, you know, sure, okay, so, you know, AI might kill us all, but how will it impact jobs? Um, <laughs> right. And so, <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it's important that somebody have their eye on the on the real ball. Um, but, of course, you know, it, the the job impact is, is not nothing. It's just, it's a major piece. It's just not the entire game board, you know? I think the quote was, God, I think it was Harris, but I don't want to say for sure, uh, was responding to someone who was talking about existential risk. And uh, she said, so when you say there's a chance that these AIs will kill us all, you mean they'll kill our jobs, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, dear. Some really deft redirection there. A lot of lawyers and politicians learn how to answer the question they wish you'd asked. Mm. Sometimes by just asking themselves a different question. Yeah. Look. We wouldn't have picked this issue if we didn't think it was the most important, right? We're working yeah. on keeping humanity alive because that's what's important to us. But I truly feel it's a mistake to set the whole thing up as a, a competition between some people trying to get one thing done and other people trying to get another thing done. The competition is the people who say, no, we shouldn't regulate AI at all. Everything is fine. 
The competition right. is the people who say there are no possible harms here. We live in the best of all possible worlds already. Those are our political opponents. The people who say, yes, we'd also like to regulate AI for these somewhat different reasons. I'd like to see those as our allies, whether they see it that way or not. Is there really anyone saying this This is all going hunky-dory and we have nothing to worry about? Yeah, isn't that the whole E slash ACC channel? It is. They, they just full speed ahead. Nothing could possibly happen. That's bad. Well, so those are our political opponents, if you like. They're, they're mine, too. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. Uh, I'll, I'll have to dig in to see what their best arguments are, because I, I, can't, I can't conjure good ones with my imagination on the spot. Um, <laughs> my last, I, I just have one, you know, kind of wrap up thought, uh, kind of just get your guys' reactions on whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future, given, you know, how far you guys have come in six months and how uh, things are looking on the political landscape and more generally, are you optimistic about the future? I, I hate the the shorthand is you know probability of doom. I don't, I don't want to put it that way, but what's your guys' vibe on on stuff? Yeah, vibe on stuff. Uh, yeah, that, that's much <laughs> much more open way of asking. <laughs> um, so so I think if you looked at a little maybe thirteen months ago, what most of Congress was thinking about AI and then compare it to today, there's been a startling and staggering difference. And so just today, Senator Schumer was opening up this eighth insight forum on AI with uh, talking about things like, I I even have the quotes pulled up here. He said, the push to develop um, artificial general intelligence or super intelligent AI that would be so powerful and capable that we would see it as a quote, digital God that was, uh, I'm quoting him here, and then the quotes were the quotation marks in the testimony that's available online. He also was talking about, um, I hope we will spend our time today on the specific policy solutions necessary to avert the long-term risks of AI and the potential doomsday scenarios. Uh, I think this would have been kind of unthinkable to see a year ago. And, and another moment like this was, um, there was this big hearing with Sam Altman and uh, IBM and Gary Marcus, all, all speaking at with with the senators and i think that might be the one where they said i assume you meant take our jobs by by these catastrophic (laughs) risks and and in that one too we saw i think senator lindsey graham went up and was talking about well i think we need licensing and and someone was saying well like uh, i don't really support licensing in the end if you ask me enough questions and then and then he he said well how could you not license the most powerful technology ever and and there was also another republican um Senator Kennedy, who was asking, I think, explicitly about AI extinction, and he he, he had uh, so so the senators are curious about this stuff and and trying to learn, and I think to see that that level of change and and shift in the Overton window from 13 months ago is uh, that that's a cause for hope. In terms of my broader perspective, to keep it short, I think basically there's this concerning thing where the AIs continue to develop more general capabilities and they become uh, better at all these things. And we're also seeing risks of misuse and more autonomous systems and then more complex and systematic uh, harms coming emerging. And the the one area of hope in the other direction is is that maybe the world in the future will look different from the world today. So sometimes people talk about, well, let's use AI to, in, to defend against these bad things or, or um, maybe we'll have like like with this 13 months example maybe the the whole uh, of society will be thinking about these risks a lot differently so i feel like very uncertain but i'm definitely i definitely think there are some 
there's a chance that this goes the catastrophic risks route and existential risks route, like a sizable chance. Jason? Yeah, you know, I think Jacob put his finger on exactly the key point, which is that interest in AI safety is skyrocketing upward at an exponential rate, even among people who you wouldn't necessarily have thought were, were AI safety people like, you know, half the U.S. Senate. And it needs to do that because otherwise we're doomed. Right? The default outcome is AI gets accessible to more and more people. It's easier and easier to train a cutting-edge AI one of those groups is irresponsible enough to develop an AI that escapes from control, becomes autonomous, becomes agentic, spreads, implements a set of preferences that have very little to do with what humans want, uh, and that's the ballgame. And that's, that's still where we're headed. That's what's eventually going to happen unless we take some kind of decisive action to stop it. The good news is every month it seems like more people are interested in taking some kind of decisive action to stop it. So we're optimistic that that curve of interest and safety will continue to increase at a rate that's fast enough and sustained enough to allow us to make the kind of national and then global investment in safety that does give us a good chance to uh, continue the species. That's awesome. And I mean, this conversation has made me more optimistic about the future. I, I had no idea that there was... I'm not, like, I'm not on Twitter, or, or so I don't see any of the like immediate news or anything, but... I had no idea that there's there's this this level of uh, governmental interest. You know, I, I knew that it was way more than it was a year ago. It's it's reassuring that they're concerned and taking this seriously, and that and that that's trending that it's trending in the direction that that's getting even more popular. All right. So finally, Center for AI Policy, what would you like our audience to know? I hear there might be some job openings. Uh, is there a donations page? Like people who are aligned with you, what can we do? Yeah, there's a there's a currently a communications director role on the careers page, and we also have a general expression of interest form for in the future if new openings emerge. So we encourage people to go check those out. And then there's also a donate button on the website. Jason, do you have anything? Yeah, I would say if you have some expertise and you can serve on a panel or offer some testimony or something like that, and you'd be interested in in being part of that effort. Let us know. Uh, we could probably fly you out to DC if you're the right kind of person. You know, just keep an eye on the careers page. We do plan to advertise for new positions from time to time. There's a, there's a great line in an old children's book called Cheaper by the Dozen. It says, I'm headed to Washington, and if they don't know how to use me, I'll tell them how they can use me. If that's you, <laughs> give us a call. Outstanding. And there is a Get Updates uh, button on the bottom of the page, too. Oh, yeah. We're about to set up a newsletter. Uh, like a Substack page. Awesome. Well, I am signed up. So this has been great. Uh, Enosh, how did you you come to hear about the Center for AI Policy? Uh, I was speaking with someone in the DC area when I was out visiting there that works in a government capacity. And he said that he knew of this organization that was trying to get a bill going that um, would help with AI regulation and said that he could get me in touch with them and put me in touch with Jason here so uh, so that we could talk about this because he's a, he's a listener to the Bayesian Conspiracy and thought it would be valuable for us to interview and get it out there. Yeah, I'm really glad he suggested it. Yeah, me too. This is great. And thanks for setting this up, Yash. And thank you guys both for joining us. Um, I learned a lot and made me more uh, optimistic about the future. Oh, 
and uh, I met the guy in DC when I was visiting to DC to visit someone else. And I just checked if there was a local rationalist group and or rat meet up there. And there was, and I said, Hey, can I come to one of your rat meetups? And they said, yeah, sure. We're not actually planning to have one the day that you're out there, but we'll throw a special one together for a visitor. And a few people met me there. I had a great time socializing, chatting with other rationalists. It's wonderful to be in a social group with, you know, people who are similar to you have shared common backgrounds and interests. And uh, one of them was this guy who we, you know, kept talking and he put me in contact with Jason. So it was great. Whenever you tr go travel somewhere new, if you're a rationalist, see if there's a rationalist group there and maybe a meetup that you can sit in on. You get to meet more people. And sometimes things like this come out of it where you get guests for your podcast. Inyash is recently enjoying, finally enjoying being retired, even though he, he quit a few years ago. And so he, he's traveling and enjoying all the fun stuff. But uh, I, need, I need to get more up on this too. So I'll, go, I'll get to some of these further field meetups and stuff in the not too distant future. Yeah, people travel for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes even just like a business trip, you can poke your head in and say like, hey, I'm going to be here, you know, these days. Any chance that anyone's having a meetup these days? And if they are, great, go. If they aren't, eh, no big deal. Maybe you'll be visiting some other city someday. Just keep trying the odds. Good advice. Um, but yeah, sorry, I think I interrupted there. Did you have any final things you wanted to leave us with? No, that's fine. It's traditional to close with a word from our sponsors, which I guess in this case is the Bayesian Conspiracy and all its meetups. It was a pleasure uh, <laughs> meeting and chatting with you. Really glad we could do this. Thank you. It was, it was delightful, and I feel like I have learned a lot, and I am feeling more optimistic as well. Thanks so much for having us on. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you both again. See ya. Hey, note for the community... It has been a long time since there's been a less wrong census survey thing, but at long last, another one was being run right now. This is super helpful for the community at large because we get to have some idea of how many people there are, what their concerns and interests are, what the demographics are like. It just really helps the people who are actually trying to do high-level organization of all us crazy rats that are running around. So... If you have read some of HPMOR, this is for you. If you just catch one out of ten of this Bayesian Conspiracy podcast, this is for you. If you read less wrong religiously and have all the sequences memorized, this is totally for you. If all you do is hang out on Twitter with the post rats and the teapot people, this is still for you. You are at least sort of rationalist adjacent. You know some of the words we talk about. Head on over there. Take a quick survey, help the people out, help us all know how many of us there are and what we are concerned about right now. It would mean a lot to the organizers and the community in general, and heck, even me personally. So if you don't mind, pause. There is a link in the show notes, and it is likely at the top of lesswrong.com right now, although I can't guarantee that it may have gotten buried a little bit. So show notes if that fails. All right, Stephen, welcome back. We're going to get into our less wrong reading like we always do. Also, I think for the first time in a long time, we're doing it after we did the episode. I know, kind of amazing. It's, yeah, like in, in, in order this time. The less wrong posts, we read two every week, and the two we're doing this week, well, the first one is Super Exponential Concept Space and Simple Words. I don't know if you wrote that title ironically. I think I said that last episode. <laughs> oh, but super, exponential, super Exponential Concept Space are not simple words. No, not even close. Yeah. But then here we are. So he starts off by telling us that reality only contains things that actually exist. Think space contains everything that could exist. But as vast as think space may be, it doesn't hold a candle to the size of concept space. And this post I found, I don't want to say tedious. I, I, it just very, like, it covered the mathematics of machine learning, which to me is uh, a step beyond what I'm usually here for. Yeah, I know what you mean. At the very least, I remember 
like having you know no way to really follow this last time I read it, which would have been ages ago. Mm-hmm. And at least I followed it this time, but then it was just kind of like, okay. And what, what's actually fun about it is, so this was would have been what, 2007? 2008 at this point. I think we're into early 2008. Okay. I don't think large language models were really a thing yet. I think like the earliest ones came out 2010 or 11, and they were just like gibberish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is kind of why I think our, if I'd read this and I was smarter 10 years ago, uh, or I guess 15 years ago, I could have anticipated that we this is not how we will train the first ais um, right and i mean that's kind of the, what he's saying is that this is just not how it works but i could have i maybe i could have uh understood that no it'll be it'll be something like basically teaching it to learn how we do just throw yeah. lots of knowledge at it and let it you know put the, put together the pieces um, yeah let it find its own bond boundaries in concept space right R- rather than try and draw it for it because that's impossible as as the yeah. math quickly demonstrates yeah well let's first define a concept because he uses it as a technical ter- as a technical term here a concept in machine learning means a rule that includes or excludes examples the example he gives is if you see the data two yes three no 14 yes 23 no eight yes nine no then you might guess that the concept was even numbers good example now we know what a concept is but he wants to display just how big concept space is so he says let's think about like days that are good to play tennis on and we got four attributes here they're the sky sunny cloudy rainy air temperature warm or cold humidity normal or high and wind having some combination of uh, attributes we then have to figure out if it's a good day to play tennis or not and all we can tell the ai is like with this combination, it is a good day, or with this combination, it is not a good day. What, what he really is getting to here is that we've got four attributes. One of them has three possible, what is it, not spaces, but um, states. three possible states. Thank you. And the other three have two possible states. So not very many combinations here. And yet he says the space of all possible concepts that classify days is the set of all possible sets of days whose size is 2 to the 24th, or more than 16 million and that's just for you know three two two and two as (laughs) the options and he says this is the problem with trying to build a fully general inductive learner they can't learn concepts until they've seen every possible example in the instant space that does seem like a a problem yeah and you know i'm I'm reminded of uh you know like the earliest image and image recognizing uh ais if you want to call them Mm -hmm. that is this a crosswalk? Is this a dog? Those, you know, were largely done through human reinforcement training. But uh, w- once it got the gist of like, oh, okay, dogs look like this, mm-hmm. uh, then then it could be like, okay, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a dog. Now we're at the point where you can say, give me a dog crossing a crosswalk in a spacesuit, and an AI will yeah. spit it out for you. Uh, Amazing. But it, but it's it's because I think it actually my understanding. I really only have a vague understanding of how Dolly works, and it works kind of like ChatGPT just with pictures. So, so that's that's only yeah circumstance with with uh, four attributes and th- one of them has three condition or three states and the other two, th- uh, three have two, and it's like no that's 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 way simpler than anything really right you know mm-hmm. if we had a forty bit or five byte uh, bit being yes or no questions that that could get us to lots of stuff that, you know compare that to like the the Socrates thing again right it's yeah. like okay well it, it matches with the you know again five byte uh, description I have for humans and five byte description I have for hemlock and whatever, right? This is just more reason because he, he wanted to tie this back. Like, what does that? What does this have to do with language? I think this might be the last one in the language posts. I think it may be. Yeah, the way that we're I'm reading them doesn't really have them separated out that way, does it? But no. 
uh, the way it should be a mess. Um, (laughs) Yes. Like a brain, (laughs) lots of induction going on. That's right. But anyway, yeah, so it's just, it's impossible to operate the world that way. So you've got to have shorthands where you, where you've carved reality up to be like, okay, look, people look like this. This generalizes back towards all the language stuff because where you carve reality with your concepts really matters. And so like saying, oh, I can define a word any way I want is actually like a huge imposition on you and on everybody else. You know, for example, in the hypothetical definition of human that you had, you you included the the tone of skin or something. Mm. Well, then suddenly you, you encounter a different skin toned human, but oh, they're not humans right. anymore, right? I mean, so, so yeah. the, it's the concepts need to be rigid enough to be useful, but not so rigid that they are too exclusive. Yes. He points out that because of this, like not only does learning rely on the inductive bias, but like nearly learning is nearly entirely just inductive bias. Because when you're comparing the number of things that you're ruling out before you even start talking, it's it's huge. The words are already just by their nature, including or excluding a ton of things. Uh, in the last post that we talked about, he stated a way to carve reality at its joints is to draw boundaries around concentrations of unusually high probability density. And now he modifies that to say a better statement would be the way to carve reality at its joints is to draw simple boundaries around concentrations of unusually high probability density in thing space. If you don't draw simple boundaries, you can't do inference with them. And I think that's like exactly what you were saying. Like if your boundary includes exactly these hues of skin tone, but not these hues of skin tone, that's not a simple boundary. And you're making it very hard to talk about humans. The point is that boundaries have to be as simple as possible and still get the concept space. Yeah. Like the human thing was, was an example with language, but it's even more like primitive than that. Like just imagine trying to find a new food. If you're Mm. an animal who, you know, you've only seen these foods that you were fed as a baby and you you come across something like, can I eat this? Well, I have no idea, right? I can even imagine like you see a slightly larger apple than normal. And if you are too rigid in your things, you're like, well, that doesn't look like food because it's 10% larger than any apple I've ever seen. And I'm not going to eat it. Right. And some apples when ripe are green, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, it can quickly get, become a mess. Um, mm-hmm. Some rocks look delicious. Mm-hmm. Some, something, something Tide Pods. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, actually, do you remember rock candy? Not like the crystals, but like the, the candy that like actually looked like rocks. No, it was. It's probably still around. I remember having it as a kid. Like it, it looked like the kind of rocks you'd pick out of your garden. It was supposed to be like a novelty kind of thing, right? You can hide it just in your rock garden, then, and no one will be the wiser. You got secret <laughs> snacks sitting around. Yeah, until the ants find it. <laughs> but, ants won't know. They but, think it's a rock. Well, then that raises the question, right? So they must be using something other than what we're using to, to determine whether or not something's food. Ah, sneaky ants. Yeah. Uh, They're certainly not using, you know, the same uh, reality carving tools that we are. Yeah. So, yeah, he he pulls it back to if once you consider like how super exponential, there's that word, the size of a concept space is, it's uh, it's pretty clear that just singling out a particular concept for consideration is a big act of audacity on its own. And he presents as an example that presenting us with the word Wigan defined as a black-haired, green-eyed person without some reason for raising this particular concept to the level of our deliberate attention is like a detective saying, well, I haven't the slightest shred of support one way or the other for who could have murdered those orphans. Not even an intuition, mind you. But have we considered John Q. Wiffelheim? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, a, it's a poignant way to bring the point home. The case illustrates the absurdity and the danger of just saying, well, how about this? Um, mm-hmm. You know, why, why don't we just, why don't we start here for no reason? Cool. All right. Well, uh, that brings us on to leave a line of retreat. 
Ooh, a classic one. And yet when I reread it, I was like, this does not say at all what I remember it saying. Oh, well, we've got to talk about what you remember it saying once we get, uh, whenever you feel like it's appropriate to interject. Okay. It starts out with the Sun Tzu quote. When you surround the enemy, always allow them an escape route. They must see that there is an alternative to death. That's a smart, smart guy. If you back them into a corner, they got nothing to lose. They're going to fight like it, right? Not, not only that, the vast majority of casualties in ancient warfare happened while the enemy was fleeing. So if you want to maximize the number of enemy you're killing, you give them a way to run away so that then they actually maybe do run away and then you can kill all of them. That too, I suppose if they turn their backs, they're an easier target. But I'm just thinking if you back them up against a cliffside or something and they're going to fight to the last man, then you're going to lose a oh, lot yeah. more than it would take to kill them, right? Hell yes, every time. Yeah. So the the parable here is don't back yourself into a corner. You know, turn around to see the cliff face and then realize, oh, actually, that's scalable. Yeah. He he starts us off with a example from his real life where he was talking uh, to a believer in souls and says, all right, before we go any further deeper into this, visualize what the world would be like if there are no souls and what you would do about that. Don't think about all the reasons it can't be that way. Just accept it as a premise and then visualize the consequences. It helps to make a belief less uncomfortable before you try to evaluate the evidence for it. I really like that. And it's it's a mark of, I don't know, my specific variety of nerd upbringing that that comes perfectly naturally to me. Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, I, not to say if it's interesting, I, I maybe I'm selling it too hard. Uh, <laughs> that That doesn't seem like a horrifying, unusual thing to me. Yeah, I think it's interesting because that is not the common human experience right normally people just don't do that right that, that that's that's my point is i think that you know if you, if you want somebody to i think it was just like aristotle had the quote of like you know now it sounds like high and mighty but it's, it's the mark of an educated person to be able to entertain an idea without believing it mm-hmm. um you know you can grab any charged subject or or any just mild one and just say okay well look what what if it was the other way what if what if the opposite is true like he was in his discussion with this woman about souls and chronics and stuff, he anticipated the like, well, hold on, I don't want to, you know, it's too scary to imagine that. He's like, just pretend it's not scary and just, you know, think about what this would actually look like. Okay, now that yeah. you're there, now we can talk about why you think you shouldn't sign up for chronics or something, right? Yeah, like if you're actually worried this might be true, that can be terrifying. But he's like, just just think of it as a thought experiment, you know? Don't even think that it's likely to be true. Just Just in a fictional, weird science fiction world, what would that world look like? What would you feel like? I guess what he says, if you if you can just imagine the fake hypothetical world where this might be true, then it might not be as terrifying to consider the possibility that it actually is in this world. Yeah, I think uh, maybe this is just part of my thing of not really having an identity at all, but or, or, or certainly, you know, certainly not like a really strong one where it's like, oh, these convictions are core to who I am or something. If I premised my entire uh, social life on trying to think of something vaguely inflammatory, but not too specific. I often think about like a medical emergency. People just don't want to know oftentimes if they have cancer because it's like, well, I guess that's my life then. I, I can't afford this. I'll just die, I guess. But like when you really sit down and try to think about the hypothetical, it's like, okay, I have to make a lot of adjustments in my life. I'm going to change my diet. All these activities that I enjoyed are probably going to have to get put on hold for a few years. And I'm going to take out a lot of debt to fight this. But like, you can see that world. It's just not like, oh, world's over. Guess I die now. It's like, I see. It's going to be tough, but there is a plan of action. Yeah, no, that's that's a good example. I was trying to add one with like a social component too, because I think that's part of a lot of the horror comes from for people. 
Mm, like, okay. like if I if I believe what my group doesn't believe, or if I don't believe what they believe, uh, mm-hmm. then I'm ostracized from this community that I'm so close with or care so much about. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the medical example is perfect, and it it certainly hits that point really well, where it's like rather than just like flinch away from the scary thought, flinch into it, and then yeah. see what you'll do in that in that in that scenario, like. A, a short yeah. story from last year when we were selling the, our, our last house and trying to get into this one, it was like a whole nightmare trying to sell the last place to like have it sell right around the time where we could close on this one, not knowing when this closing date would be. Uh, and then when we finally got to put it on the market, like no one was biting and it was, and I'm thinking, okay, well I, I'm walking through all of this and I'm just trying to figure out like, can we actually afford the place if this doesn't work? And like, okay, yes, yeah, so if I liquidate everything I have and then, uh, put that down as the down payment. And then when we sell the house, I can just kind of reimburse myself. We can still make mm-hmm. this happen. And mm-hmm. I, re- I think I realized I was stressing my wife, like talking her through this. Cause it, it, like there's already lots of stress going on with packing and people coming through the house with showing it and whatever. Mm-hmm. And here I am just like saying, Hey, well, you know, if the loan doesn't work out, you know, we can just do this or whatever. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, why, why am I bringing these up? Cause that's how I think about stuff is like, maybe it's like a worrying impulse. But yeah. rather than just like idly worrying, I'm thinking, okay, well, here's here's what I can actually do about it. Yeah, yeah. By and large, I think it's it's this is just a good technique. And he brings up just like you know more mundane things. Like I don't know. Finally, maybe a couple of years ago, it finally clicked where I stopped being worried that I get fired every day. I, I finally had enough affirmation from coworkers that I don't really suck at this because I was just sure yeah. that one day my bosses would wake up and realize like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing and fire me. Um, right. And now I'm at the stage of like, okay, well, if that happens, like, yeah, it'll suck. But here's what I'll do if that happens. And look yeah. at that. It's totally survivable. Yeah. So it, it's like, but for a while, that was a paralyzing fear. Um, oh, man. And then w- once you kind of just get past that, then it's it's uh, it's amazing what becomes less scary once you actually think about what you can do about it. I think it's a sign of a really toxic community if you start doing this kind of thought experiment and you think, well, if I believe these things, then all the people I care about are going to cut me out of my their lives and I will never see the people I love again. And for that not to be just like crazy hyperbolic, oh no, my boss is going to figure out I suck and he's going to fire me, but to literally be actually true that if you were to say a few times something like, actually, I think most men are pretty good, that you would lose your society and your friends and the people who love you, I think that's a sign that you are in a really terrible society and they have somehow created a hellish dystopia and now you are living in fear of of even believing something that is not popular. Or even even considering it. Or even considering it, yeah. Like, the, I can see that this being a legitimate real fear for people uh, and, and I th- just think that's a very good sign. You need to find some way to get out of that community as quickly as possible. We welcome you to the rationalist community. We're thinking... Uh outside the the group norms is not only welcome but encouraged yes uh, where we often very <laughs> strenuously disagree with each other about stuff and yet remain friends yeah i mean it, it's interesting you know like if if you're having a conversation with like whatever the statistics of police violence or something mm-hmm. you know somebody might just be totally unwilling to uh be open to just looking at r- reported crime statistics right because mm-hmm. it might go against the narrative that they've been, you know, so uh, holding holding so closely for so long, and that if they were to challenge, you know, with their friends, then, like you said, it, it, I think you're right. It, it's a it's a mark of a toxic uh, community, and uh, it's one of the things I like about ours. Yeah. Well, 
Enough filleting ourselves. <laughs> uh, the, the last thing he pulled out here, I love filleting myself. Well, if we're filleting the entire community, I think I can get away with it for a little longer. So That's true. You know, it's a, it's a act of service to the community to fillet the entire community. Right. So we should encourage that. Uh, we'll save, uh, we, we'll fillet later too when we mention the Gov the Rose. So, Oh, absolutely. Uh, all right. The last thing I pulled out here is that you shouldn't be afraid to just visualize a world you fear. If that world is already actual, visualizing it won't make it worse. And if it is not actual, visualizing it will do no harm. Hmm. I can think of exceptions to that last line. Really? Uh, yeah, I mean, if um, running with your medical example, you know, like, it, it, say you've got a test that's going to come back and there's a 5% chance you have whatever, some terrible cancer. Uh, may, oh. Maybe it's better off just waiting until the test results come in before you even think about it. Right. Because otherwise, you'll be just doing yourself a ton of anxiety in the whatever yeah. couple weeks. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's really nothing actionable you can be doing in those two weeks. Because let's just say like the answer is just a death sentence, right? Right. Uh, so it's not like, well, I could start taking proactive measures now. Although maybe one should if like, you know, if it is the standard, like get your affairs in order, you know, set up a, a whatever, someone to inherit your estate and all that. Um, yeah. That's that's something I've been meaning to do for the last few years. And I'm not even, hopefully not even sick. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it is interesting. Um but yeah, I, I, I generally agree with that. Yeah. All right. So I, I'm going to touch on now how I remembered this extremely incorrectly. Whenever I run into this concept or, or someone saying leave a line of retreat out in the real world, uh, it is when arguing with others or when talking about arguing with others and it's being brought up like, don't press the point too hard. Don't, don't hold their feet to the fire too much. Like, obviously do do that, but... Always leave the person who's in the conversation on the other end a line of retreat. And it's considered good practice. Not only is it less, um, I don't know, antisocial to not be a total jerk about it, but it is like pointed out, look, this is good practice because if they think they have to defend their belief to the death, then they're going to. But if you're kind of nice about it and leave a line of retreat, then that makes people more open to maybe considering what you're saying in the fullness of time and not... Uh, and not resisting it quite so hard. You're actually going to win more over time by being nicer. And while all that is true, that's not what this post is about at all. This post is about that you personally working on yourself. Like, I should consider the world uh, that scares me. Um, and I should be willing to visualize what I fear because it will make me better and I will be able to change my mind more easily if I have to. I will be able to consider thoughts that are instinctively scary that might be true. It's it's all about like how to make myself better and how to make ourselves better as opposed to how to win over people in arguments. So just completely different focus. Not even related, you know? Yeah. I mean, what you what you said sounds good and I'm trying to think of it sounds vaguely familiar. I mean, certainly there, there's a, there's a, you know, a, a good norm of disagreement where like you aren't pushing the person too hard. And like the only like possible outcome for them, if they're wrong is that they're an idiot. Mm -hmm. um, you you want to make it clear, like, you know, it was not, a, it's, it's a very, you know, uh, forgivable mistake or, you know, whatever, you know, I'm like, imagine talking to like a climate change denier or something. And it's like, no, man, of course you, you know, my, it's, it's super reasonable to be mistaken about this. Look at how confusing all the reporting is on this. You know, um, mm -hmm. you want to make it like not their fault. And like, again, where they're, if they're, if they admit that they're wrong, it's not like they're at the same time being forced to admit that they're, that they're idiot. But yeah, that, that has nothing to do with what's in this post. Maybe you invented that yeah. or maybe 
you read it somewhere else, but either way, I like it. If it's an original Ineash, props. And if it's not, uh, you still get props for, for sharing it. So, oh, okay. I, I will take the second props then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are we reading next time? All right. The second law of thermodynamics and engine of cognition, or excuse me, this is all one title. The second law of thermodynamics and engines of cognition. And then the second post is perpetual motion beliefs. Excellent. Well, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the Guild of the Rose uh, is is people who help us leave line of retreats. (laughs) Uh, Right? If you're having trouble spotting yours for whatever your given scenario is, the Guild's there to help. And oh, you'll, yeah. you'll be trained better with the tools to, to identify them yourself. Oh, dude, that was so much better. Thank you for saving me there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they help by creating a community for all of us to level up each other and support each other in this leveling up our rationalism thing. You know, I think the opposite of leaving a line of retreat might be like planning a, a line of action, uh, yeah. which I think is like the most common failure mode for people not getting things done. Like we talked about with uh, uh, Jason and Jacob yes, or, uh, earlier in this episode. You know, they took the the hard problem of like no one's no one's really talking to the government about this, and someone should, and they just like actually did it. When the I Guild of the Rose is like that for more general problems, exactly. And and if you if you've encountered the the, the circumstances of like oh that's impossible for me, well, why do you think that? Uh, yeah. Maybe it's actually not. So yeah, get in there, level yourself up, check it out. I, it's a lot of fun. It is. It occurs to me that we start talking about them as if everybody knows about what they are, and um, that may not be the case. This may be your first episode. The Guild of the Rose is an organization of rationalists that meets online. They help us all support each other in learning to be better rationalists and leveling up our rationalist skills, and we strongly believe in their mission, which is why we partner with them and uh, remind you guys every every episode, like, hey, check them out. They, they really are doing good work, and it will make your life better, too. Yes, thank you for the uh, high-level reminder. I sometimes forget, you know, because it's it's not our first episode. Um, You're right. So it feels so familiar to me, but it could be someone's first. Yeah, so uh, check out guildoftherose.org for, for more information. Um, yep. Specifically, check out, I, I recommend looking just through the uh, the outline of their paths system. It gamifies getting better at life. Gives a really good intro taste to the, to the organization. Yeah. And uh, yeah, also link in the show notes. Yep. All right, very last thing. We have to thank our patron, much like the um, Center for AI Policy has various patrons in the donors that help them do their mission, uh, we have some patrons that really help us out a lot and help bring all this to everyone who's listening here. Well put. Thank you. And this week's donor that is helping not just us, but all of our audience is Martin Kretzman. Martin Thank you for your support. It really does mean a lot to us. It makes the world a better place, especially with an episode like this, where you know if if somebody is finding themselves in a position to help work uh, with or for the uh, uh, CAIP, or um, becomes aware of it and donates money, like their mission uh, could very well end up helping save the world. Martin, you're literally like John Connor helping to save the world from the AIs. Well, anyway, Martin, thanks a lot, and. Uh, Remember, I guess we've got a Patreon. You can find it in the show notes. And uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Am I leaving anything out? You can like and subscribe, uh, leave a review, that kind of thing as well, if for some reason uh, you're not comfortable uh, helping out on Patreon. And if you're not, no pressure. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you are, uh, our reward tiers are were made up, you know, on the spot <laughs> Ages five ago. years ago and don't mean anything. Yeah. So if you, if you if you set up in your Patreon and you want something, just let us know. We're all over it. So uh, absolutely, we'll do our best to accommodate. Heck yeah. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Stephen, for joining me. Thank you. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye.